Hello and welcome to Stories from the Ridge, Macaulay's podcast series. I'm Lee Burns, head of school, and today we have a lively and timely discussion on one of my favorite topics, issues facing boys and men in today's culture. Dr. Richard Reeves, a fellow at the Brookings Institute, has just published a new book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. Already the book has garnered significant praise and recognition from top social commentators, and it's my hope that it'll help focus national attention on this timely and important topic. Recently, Dr. Reeves joined me in a Zoom conversation about his book and what he sees as the main challenges facing males. I asked Troy Kemp, formerly a Macaulay teacher, coach, and administrator, and now administrator at the Ron Clark Academy in Atlanta, to join me in this conversation with Dr. Reeves. Because Dr. Reeves and Troy Kemp joined me via Zoom audio, you might find the audio quality of our talk a bit challenging at times, but I assure you, if you're interested in hearing from top experts about the challenges facing boys and men, this is worth listening to. So please join me in the studio and Richard Reeves and Troy Kemp via Zoom. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by two men who have great expertise in the field of boys and the challenges and struggles and opportunities they face as they grow from boyhood to manhood and, and really the sort of men that they become and what it means to be a man in today's world and in our society. And first, we're joined by Richard Reeves, who's with the Brookings Institute. And Richard wrote a great book published this fall called Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. A really powerful, important piece of work that's gotten, gotten a lot of national acclaim, rightly so. Also joined by Troy Kemp. Uh, Troy is the Director of Strategic Relationships and Partners Partnerships at the uh, Ryan Clark Academy down in Atlanta. Troy's a former Executive Director of the National Center for the Development of Boys, and Troy worked at Macaulay with uh, us for 27 years here. So welcome, Richard, and welcome, Troy, to Stories from the Ridge. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Really excited about this opportunity. Right. Well, thank you. Well, Richard, I want to start with you and you know, this book that you've just written um, about the struggles that boys and men are facing um, in our country, not just in the United States, but really around the world. Um, why did you write that and why did you write it now? Well, the, the, the personal reason is that I've raised three boys myself to their to their they're all now young men in their 20s. Um, so I know that's nothing to the, what is it? Almost a thousand boys that, that you're all raising. That's right. Yeah. We have yeah about a thousand boys at Macaulay. Right. So that's great. So I've just done three. Um, but it's just seeing for them, even from the pretty privileged backgrounds that they had, of course, this, you know, what are the issues around what it meant to be male? What was good about being male? What was permissible about being male? And just the cultural conversation that they were having in their classrooms, in you know, and in the hallways, and with their friends, that was a big part of it. But then, in my day job at Brookings, I work on issues around family policy, inequality, education, and I just kept stumbling across more and more data, which really made me really made me concerned, not just for three boys, but for millions, and especially those who have fewer resources in the U.S. And I would say especially black boys and men, but also working class boys and men who just 
really struggling on a whole bunch of domains that we might get into, but certainly in terms of education, employment, and then in terms of family life too. And it was an issue that I felt wasn't getting enough attention, or, or maybe a better way to put it is it wasn't, in my view, it wasn't getting the right kind of attention. So there's lots of discussion of toxic masculinity and patriarchy from the left. And then I would say a kind of reactionary impulse on the political right, in some ways, almost uh, a celebration of what I would see as quite an adolescent form of masculinity. Um, and really just a lot of, you know, a lot of young men of good intent just lost in the middle and really drifting. And I think that's a huge problem for them, for society, for our families and for our future. And one of the things you write a lot about is the struggles that boys are facing in their schools and you know, all kinds of statistics. Maybe we can get into those in just a little bit. And but in a lot of ways, boys are failing at school. But I think a broader question is, are our schools failing our boys? And are there structural things that are at play in how we think about um, schools and what it means to thrive and how to how to bring out the best in boys in the in their schools? And can you talk a little bit about sort of your sort of the state of how boys are doing uh, in schools? Yeah, and I'm I'm really glad you framed it that way as being a more of a structural problem than an individual problem because i do think that in a society where close to one in four boys of k-12 age have been diagnosed with some kind of developmental disability makes me think there's something wrong with the system at that point rather than the there's something wrong with the boys which isn't to say that there aren't you know, boys have lots of struggles there are lots of lots of developmental disabilities around i'm not seeking to understate those but I think the structure of education, the way that education is run, structured, the ethos of the education system, the kinds of skills that are rewarded are all just not as male friendly as they should be. And the problem is then that if boys are struggling in that mainstream education system, there's a tendency to, to frame the question exactly the way that I think you just avoided doing. It's like, what's wrong with them? So at some level, we're always asking ourselves either out loud or in our heads, why can't you be more like your sister? And, and missing the fact that boys on average are different in some important ways and ways that are, I would say, decreasingly catered to in mainstream education. And so it's the system that's failing the boys rather than the boys that are failing in the system. But the result, of course, is that they really do struggle and that that causes all kinds of problems down the line. But I would say as a general proposition, I think I'm, I think we're in agreement on this is that as a general proposition, it's the system failing the boys, not the other way around. And Troy, in your role at uh, Ron Clark Academy, I know you do professional development for 10,000 or so teachers a year. And I know a lot of your work is centered around how do you develop classrooms and schools that are boy-friendly and bring out the best in boys? Because oftentimes they're not designed in ways that play to the general strengths of boys. So Troy, what are some of the things that you think are important to be happening in classrooms and at schools to bring out the very best in boys? Well, thank you for asking that question because I think that this is, you know, uh, um, Dr. Reeves, your book points out, you know, people will invest in solutions if they understand the problem. And I think sometimes people don't necessarily see the problem until it's affecting someone that they love. And I think, again, when it scales it up to a systemic solution for a systemic problem, I really love the opportunity that we have at the Ron Clark Academy uh, we're, a, we're a school, but we're also a, res, uh, a, a lab school where people actually come to see practices and best practices in, in action. For example, we, we have, you know, our students track the, the teachers. That's one of the things that we require our students to do. And the tracking, again, it's basically an object moving through space. It's called the teacher, but it's still an object. 
We we stand when we speak. Our kids stand when they speak. That's physical movement. The chants and cheers. The things that we use to make sure that every child is engaged, no matter if their brain is red hot or ice cold. This is when you when you deal with boys. In my time in the classroom, 27 years at Macaulay, what I saw is that you know boys will their brains or they'll just if they don't have the physical movement, they will disengage, and then people will assume that they do not want to learn or they're not interested. You know, I tell people, regardless of 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 all the things, if your teacher is not engaging, I don't care what the lesson is, unless you're part of the 10 to 15 percent of the people who who can learn without a teacher, um, you're you're going to be seen as dysfunctional. And 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 I'm lo- I'm loving the fact that the best practices every day we do it every day, but that we share it at least once a week uh, at the Ron Clark Academy. So that movement, um, using topics that are relevant to the young people that we serve, particularly the boys. Um, even the social uh, economic demographic, what music do they listen to? You know, all those things to integrate that into the lesson plans. That is an essential thing. That's what responsible educators should do. And I think so often in a classroom, you know, the prevailing uh, dynamic is, Hey, you need to be quiet, sit still, be, be passive. Um, And I think boys, generally speaking, they're, they have a high propensity for energy, for adventure, for risk taking. They want classrooms that mirror that. They're going to see those as strengths. And so when you find teachers who say, hey, I can, not only can I tolerate, but I'm going to embrace the energy of boys. I'm going to have classrooms full of movement and very collaborative and hands-on and connect it really to the real world where they understand the why behind it. I think you get boys who are much more invested in the learning process. Troy, one of the things that you mentioned, you're talking about the brain. And I know, Dr. Reeves, in your book, you talk a lot about what's the role of biology in being a differentiating factor, generally speaking, in how boys um, learn, but how, but how they develop. Can you talk a little bit about the some of the biology um, that's at play um, in how mm. boys are doing? Yeah, sure. Should have said at the beginning that I'd uh, much rather you call me Richard than Dr. Reeves, although <laughs> I appreciate the, the honorific. Um, and, and I love what Troy just said about it, you know, people caring when it affects someone they love and, and his description of those classrooms. Um, I just, I think I agree with everything about you know, moving around, more applied, et cetera. One of the reasons for that is because there is a difference on average in the way that boys and girls' brains develop. But even more importantly, in some ways, is the when they develop. And so we see the development of this prefrontal cortex, which is the bit of your brain that makes you turn your chemistry homework in and turn up on time. And maybe I should go to bed early because i got a test tomorrow, whatever. It's the future orientation bit of your brain. It just, it seems it's triggered by puberty and it develops about a year or two earlier in girls. And so, especially in adolescence, there's really a very big difference in just the the, the brain development stage that the, wow. the typical boy is at at 15 or 16 and the typical girl is at at 15, 16. And we have an education system that generally doesn't acknowledge that fact. And the trouble is that right now, biological explanations are out of fashion in some corners of, of society because people are afraid it will be used in some way to say one is better than the other. But my reading of it is just to say that there are differences, some of which have been mentioned, risk-taking, more applied, hands-on learning, and some of which are just in the timing of the development, which is that just girls' prefrontal cortexes, they grow earlier. And again, it's one of those things where you go out into the real world, talk to any teacher and any parent, or in fact, anybody that's even been a boy or a girl, and they're like, duh, tell me something I don't know. Um, and so it's well known, but but not really acted on in terms of how we think about our classrooms. And so it's one of the reasons I insisted on keeping the biological part of the argument in, despite the concerns of some people, 
reading the book is because a it's true and b we're not having a good faith discussion about it right now not least in education and so you will see reports on adolescence and education that just simply don't engage with these biological differences at all and i think that's a, a real massive failing on the part of the educational establishment and you know i think when you look at the trend lines um and to me one of the most striking ones you look at um you know college um enrollment right now where it's close to 60 percent of college students in the u.s are are female versus male and, and even around the world it's that way as well. And there's clear, there's something that just seems like it must be going on structurally for so much, for the men to be disengaging, dropping out, not performing well. If you look at you know, students in the top 10% of the class and valedictorians and all kinds of metrics, it's really the girls have just far outpaced the boys, which, you know, 50 years ago, you wouldn't have thought that with, you know, when title nine was um, passed and obviously what a great, important thing that was. Um, but it's really, a, it's just changed so much in about a generation or so, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. And so quickly, I think that's the other thing. So there's actually, there's a bigger gender gap in U.S. higher education today than when Title IX was passed. So when Title IX was passed, men were about 13 percentage points more likely to get a college degree. Now women are 15 percentage points more likely than men to get a college degree. So the inequality hasn't just disappeared it's reversed and is now wider than it was and as you say it's true everywhere and so this tells us it is structural it's something about the way the education system works and ironically it took the women's movement taking the the brakes off women's opportunities and aspirations to expose the fact that intrinsically there are a lot of ways in which the education system is not male friendly we couldn't see that under conditions of sexism but we can see it now and now that we can see it we have a responsibility to do something about it because the trend the, the trends are clear and the last thing i'll say is that i think one of the reasons why we need to have the conversation is that there are lots of institutions whose job it is quite rightly to point out where things aren't working for girls and women including national coalition for women and girls in education america the american association of university women etc and they will they're well-funded organizations who do a good job but where are the equivalent organizations, Troy, one of Troy's affiliations accepted that are doing the same for boys and men. And so there's there's just not enough discussion about these trends and these issues in general. Troy, I'd like to get well, your can reaction. I, can I jump in? Yeah, jump in, Troy. Yeah, I was, I was, I'm telling you, my pen, I almost broke my pen because I was writing so much down because I was listening. Um, you know, I really think about, you know, one of the one of the solutions that, that you talked about, uh, Richard, was uh, the red shirt year. And it's interesting. My my son repeated grade six because there was there was clearly he had the aptitude, but he needed this right attitude in terms of the, the self discipline and things. I just saw him as a very powerful person that that didn't have the self regulatory uh, regulatory skills. So you know, it's a ninety five mile per hour fastball, but he can't put it over the plate. That's what it kind of felt like, and he just felt like he needed more time. And it was probably the best decision we ever made as parents. But the interesting thing is when you the transition from high school to college. One of the things that I realized is that one, young people have to be incredibly independent to navigate everything from getting the financial aid they need to doing their assignments because it's all written, it's all email based, it's all checked in. You have to you have to really set systems and put systems in place, or you'll just miss the memo. And I saw this pretty clearly. Set up your internet when you walk in on the first day of school, and my son took the paper off the bed. He said. He said, this is a nice bed. He throws the pen and the paper in the trash can. My daughter reads it and sets up her internet. 
where it takes my son three months or three weeks to set up his internet because he couldn't find the paper. Well, part of it is this, um, the discipline to say, I should do this, but do this right now. So it's interesting when you talk about the gap year, can you expand mm -hmm. upon that a little bit about the reasons why this is a, a, a sort of a good thing and what you've seen? So when I'm listening to that story about the internet, Troy. I'm, I'm thinking, uh, well, first of all, your sons must not play as many video games as mine because they had the internet hooked up pretty much straight away when they went to college uh, for that reason. Um, so maybe a good thing about your son. But the proposal that I put in the book is to just by default start boys in school a year later. Uh, and the reason for that is because this developmental gap we've, we've talked about that boys' brains develop a little bit later than girls do. And it means they don't have to get held back. Like maybe you, it can be difficult. I don't know, be interested to know how it was for your son, but to be held back a grade during that, that, those school years is tough. And actually I was startled to learn that one in four black boys in the US have repeated at least one grade by the time they finish. And that may be for very, very good reasons, but that also just means that's a recognition that just they're struggling. And that can be socially quite difficult to be held back a grade. And so I just want to bake it in from the beginning. The, you know, put 16, 15 year old girls uh, because they're actually developmentally about the same age on average. And then maybe wouldn't need this gap year between school and college. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. A lot of private schools offer that year and it's kind of a maturation year, but I'd rather sort of, in, I'd like to do is I'd like to just deal with the problem right from the outset and just enroll boys in kindergarten a year later than girls. So that they're a year later throughout the education system. Does that, does it make sense in terms of a description? Absolutely. Um, can I dive in? I just wanted to follow up on something you said, because when you looked at the thing that you really talked about, black boys and men facing acute challenges and, you know, this combination of the combination of racism and sexism when it comes to boys and black men and how that manifests itself in the education system, but just in general, can you, can you kind of expand upon that and, and how that, that lens or those, those, um, the, the plurality of that, um, create sort of a, a double negative experience in some ways. Yeah, you put it perfectly. This is how I this is how I understand this this horrible word intersectionality from Kimberly Crenshaw. But it's a useful it's a useful concept, which is don't just look at a binary, don't just look at male, female, black, white, rich, poor, southern, northern, but look try to look at as many of those different uh, dimensions as possible and how they intersect on a particular individual. And when I look at the data, I see black boys and men really, as you just said, Troy, at the sharp end of most of these challenges and much bigger education gaps between black boys and black girls. Black girls have actually seen extraordinary educational rises in recent decades, not to say that they've got to equality and because white girls and women have gone even faster, but um, really, really good gains, but just not so true for black boys and men. Already for every two degrees, college degrees earned by a black woman, there's only one from a black man. And as I think you just alluded to much higher rates of exclusion from these schools where schools just don't, you know, don't uh, know how to cope uh, in some ways, masculinity generally. But then if you add the racism that goes along with being a black boy, very high rates of suspension and exclusion. And so the result of all that is just a very, very poor set of outcomes for black boys and men. And the, the cultural point I think to make here is an important one, which is that my reading of this is that black boys and black men are not in some ways struggling despite being male but because they're male because of the stereotypes that are attached to black masculinity in particular and how that plays out in our classroom and in our labor market um so i don't know if you agree with that troy or 
um, whether that comports with your experience, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's a way to also have a more nuanced conversation about male, female, which is to add the racial aspect to it. So I'm curious, why aren't there oh, more? I can... go, uh, no, go ahead, Troy. I'll, I'll get to my question in a second. Yeah, go no, ahead. Lee, I was just going to say, yeah, you, I, I think you hit it spot on when it comes to um, this, this experience. You know, for me, people always ask me, you know, did I was I did I ever feel like oppressed or just not given a particular chance because of my um, my background and all my race, my socioeconomic status, and what it does is make you wake up in the morning and, and you have to be the exception every day. And there's only a certain percentage of people who are exceptional in that way. So other than that, you feel like you failed every day. So it's a really interesting thing to have a, a different kind of vision for yourself and having pessimism as opposed to optimism, which is the essential thing to having success. You have to be optimistic. But when you look in the mirror, sometimes you, you got to talk past what you see um, and find a strategy to just deal with what's going to come when you open the door. So I'm curious, why isn't there more conversation that's going on around this issue, around these struggles that boys and men are facing in our country, while the statistics are so clear in what's happening in school, workplace, the families. I mean, boys and men, generally speaking, are not thriving. Why isn't there more of a national conversation about this? Well, um, I'll have I'll have a go first. Troy, I'd love to hear what you say, too, from your perspective. But I think it's for a couple of reasons. One is that there just aren't institutions whose job it is to talk about this. I mean, there, there are lots of organizations, as I think I mentioned earlier, that whose job it is to highlight the problems of women and girls. And that's great. And they do a good job, but who wakes up in the morning with the job of pointing out these statistics? So I, I, you know, I, I was shocked by these statistics and then I've been shocked by how many other people are shocked by them as well, because it's just not known. But I think the other is that we're just trapped in a bit of a moment in our public conversation where many people feel that just to raise the fact that there are many boys and men struggling is somehow to signal a retreat uh, on behalf of women and girls to blame feminism to blame women and girls that somehow it's a it's a sign that you're moving in a very anti-feminist or anti-female direction simply to raise these questions uh, and so a lot of people are afraid to raise these these points and these questions because they don't want to be categorized as some member of the alt-right manosphere um who just hates women and so uh, i unfortunately i do think that there's a degree of self-censorship going on around this issue too even when i think the facts should speak for themselves and we can think two thoughts at once and it is perfectly possible to look at these problems of boys and men without in any way giving up on many of the important challenges that remain that we have to work on for women and girls i, I echo what you're saying richard it's really interesting because the, the first word i wrote down was or you know, I think, uh, you know, or is sort of a binary word. It's you win or you lose. And when it comes to talking about the, the needs for boys and men, it's it's or either if we talk about this, that means the women have to take a fall back and we have to take the emphasis off of what girls and women need. But there's also layers when you look at it. Again, it's not a, a binary thing because there's socioeconomics, there's, there's race, there's, there's class, there's all kinds of things that that complicate and then you know sometimes there's correlation and people will say that's not causation and so because they can't explain it it's like talking about masculinity or toxic masculinity versus non-toxic masculinity i know at one point richard you talked about that what does it mean to be a man it's almost like you have to 
back up while you're saying it and 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 be defensive about the fact that you're trying to describe something that every boy needs. They need a vision for manhood, but unfortunately, that's being challenged on every front. So, so I think part of this is that we're not real clear as to where we stand on things because we're constantly trying to move to avoid any conflict. You know, but here's the way I feel about it. Kids don't get a mulligan. I mean, yeah, you can read redshirt your your theory or your thoughts about redshirt, and that's one thing, but they don't get the time back on the clock when they're going through this experience mm -hmm. in education. When they turn 18, they turn 18. They can't turn the clock back. So what are we gonna do? Just lose time with the children while we're arguing about who's right and who's wrong. If you think of and instead of or, you can make sure that we're doing what we need to do for young women and, and, and girls, but also do what we need to do for boys and acknowledge that, you know, look both ways when you cross the street. The boys are on one side and the girls are over here right now and there's some people in the middle, but ultimately, we're not really looking both ways because we're afraid if we look to the left and we see something that we're going to have to own it in a way that we don't feel comfortable owning it. I just I just want to underline that I I completely I completely agree with everything you just said, uh, Troy. And I and I give an example which is it is perfectly possible to say, look, if there are some subject areas where girls have historically struggled and where we might want to get some more female teachers, some more effort in like STEM STEM subjects and math and so on too great we've done that it's been quite successful but what about english for boys um or what about verbal skills for boys where they are clearly struggling i mean in the in the typical u.s school district now the girls are almost a great level ahead in english and they've caught up in math so there's no math gap in favor of boys anymore really um but there's a huge english gap in favor of girls and that's so important for everything else that happens after that and so Troy, for the reason you just said which is this fear that you're somehow going to fall into this trap of, uh, of of being less committed to the cause of women and girls simply by raising the problems of boys and men. I think that's very dangerously wrong. It's interesting. I, and one thing I can tell you is, you know, I spent 27 years of my career at the Macaulay School, and I, I know this is this is not really a topic of discussion in this in this podcast. But one of the reasons why, when I was the dean of admission at the school, the number one reason why families chose Macaulay, other than you know the values and things of that was to make sure that the boys had a place where we can be intentional about what the education that we gave them, did we, what did we want to emphasize? You know, reading, writing, revision, you know, really strengthening by using the interests and leveraging the interests of boys and competition. How can we can engage them more in the things that typically they're, they fall behind in when it comes to national trends? You have to be in an all-boys school, but you need to be in a school that's really boy-friendly. And unfortunately, some of these best practices are not shared by, by a number of educators. Troy, I want to loop back to something you said a little bit ago and underscored as well about how important it is to give boys a vision for manhood. And you've got this society in which there is, I think, a lot of shaming, a lot of toxic masculinity. And Richard, you write in your book about how you know, masculinity is more of a, of a social construct than femininity is. And I wonder if, if you would sort of unpack that a little bit for us. And then I want to springboard from there in terms of how do we, how do boys, how do men see their vision of who they are and how does that impact their work and also their roles in the families? And you talk about it, we need a new vision for um, how men should think about themselves in, in their families. So can you uh, address that a bit? Yeah. And, and they do, they do connect quite well, I, I, I think. So my my view is that masculinity is a lot more socially scripted than femininity. Obviously, both both require a, a script, if you like, for us to, to follow, which is not 
a prescriptive script if i can put it that way of course you can depart from it and many people do it's not it's not like determinative this is like this is the only way to be a man this is the only way to be a woman but i do think most of us need some kind of guidelines some sort of sense of like this is the direction to go and the reason i think that masculinity is more scripted than femininity is that femininity has historically and i think still more more obviously associated with fertility becoming a mother etc is a bit more obviously biologically based which doesn't mean to say there aren't then scripts around femininity that go beyond that but for masculinity a little bit less obviously biologically based in terms of these key markers and so has to be more socially scripted that's why most societies have worked quite hard to have rites of passage ways for boys to become men etc so it's a cultural task that every human society has faced what is the script for masculinity and the way i see the current situation is that we tore up the old scripts for masculinity which were around main breadwinner traditional marriage etc because of the rise of the, the successful rise of women's economic independence which most of us i'm sure welcome certainly i do but we didn't really then say okay so what does that mean for men what's the new what's the new script for masculinity that's compatible with this this new world and i think there are some people who naively thought well, we don't need one maybe we just get rid of masculinity altogether um or we're all you know we can be all be androgynous um and there are some other people who think well only the old script will do whereas my view is we need we do need a script but it has to be a new one that's compatible with this changed world i don't think very many people want to turn back the clock on the on the women's movement and so we need to raise our boys to be men in a world of gender equality but that does also involve them being fathers in a way that's complementary to but different in many ways to that of mothers but the danger with the current trend is that if we script men out altogether, then what does it mean to be a father? We hollow out the very idea of fatherhood, whereas we need to revalorize fatherhood in a very big way, but in a new way. Can I can I um, can I add to that? It's something that I thought about was kind of, kind of processing what does it mean to be a man? And I did a, I had a, recently had a panel of, of middle school boys. And we, you know, we asked about that, you know, what does it mean to be a man today? And, and what are the challenges that boys face when it comes to manhood? And I think it, that was exactly it. It was sort of their vision of what's, what was sort of an old script and sort of what's the new script, which is not really written, but they usually, what they'll you'll find out is if you did something wrong, one person says man up or be a man, or if you do something wrong or, or in excess in one direction, that's toxic. And so the young men are sort of caught between the margins here and they're saying, okay, so what do we do? And one young man put it best. I thought it was a great answer. You know, again, it comes back to and versus or. It's about balance. It's like being a leader. You have to be compassionate and indifferent at times. And the ability to, to regulate and have the situational awareness and awareness of others in general to know um, how to, when to use which tool. You know, uh, classic example, I talked to a bunch of dads and I surveyed them and I said, what are your strong, what are your strengths? What are your challenges? And one challenge, uh, one strength was being reliable you know, being courageous. And then the biggest sort of biggest strength was being reliable, courageous, those things, um, accountable. And one of the biggest weaknesses was being emotionally available and being vulnerable. And the challenge is if somebody's breaking in your house at night, you're not trying to be emotionally available. <laughs> you're, you're trying to eliminate the threat. So you got to shut off those emotions. But then when you're trying to stay married, you got to be vulnerable and you have to be emotionally <laughs> available to, to be able to communicate properly. So it's ability to say that, yeah, you don't need a hammer for everything, 
but you do need a, need a screwdriver and you know the difference between a screw and a nail. And I think that's one of the biggest things about boys is to make sure that they have a wider, um, uh, uh, a, a wider range of tools, but more importantly, practices that help them understand when to access them. And I think the number one way to do that is to put them in roles where they can be leaders because those very same tools that you use to relate to people in a, in a personal way, you do in a, in a group way. So you have to be empathetic. You have to be compassionate. You have to be indifferent. You can't use a hammer for everything. And that's one of the things that I saw when I was at the Macaulay School is having the kids be in leadership roles, even if it was in summer camp, leading a group of seven, eight-year-olds. That's a way that they can develop those. So I think there's some deliberate and intentional ways that we can help them frame up and widen their their uh, uh, access to the things that they'll need to be whole. Yeah. Troy, I like how you use the word uh authentic and vulnerable. And I think those are two things that boys and men, I think, so often struggle with. We think, oh, we've got to be strong. We can't say we don't know the answer, that we're afraid, that we're lonely. Um, and we need to put them and give them opportunities for uh, for developing the characteristics and habits of being brave and vulnerable and, and authentic. And, um, and I think just giving them a vision of manhood and what it means to be a man in today's world, because it's, it's not clear to them, as Richard, as you mentioned, the script has been sort of torn up, but there's not necessarily a new mm-hmm. script. And script, and there's so many messages around toxic masculinity, where it's like, oh, is there something wrong with me um, as a person? And certainly, there there are many elements of, of of maleness and so forth that need to be that that aren't appropriate, of course. Um, I think so often we try to deny that sort of the basic, you know, some of the basic biology, some of the ways that boys and men are are naturally wired. And I think if we can find ways to give them, you know, find schools and job settings and, and just in relationships to sort of draw on those assets and natural wiring, it'll, it'll, it'll be a better fit and uh, boys are more likely to flourish when we can do those sorts of things for them. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And actually, I was, I think I, think I quote this in the book, but um, the J.F. Roxborough, who was was the headmaster of Stowe School, a boys private school in the UK, he was asked like what he was trying to do. And he said, I'm trying to turn out young men who will be acceptable at a dance and invaluable in a shipwreck. <laughs> great. And I, I was asked on a, I was asked on a podcast recently, well, could you update that? And I said, you know, I tried to, and I said, you know, I think it works because <laughs> you know what he's getting at, which is, like you've learned to temper yourselves, to be in society, maybe to, to show a little bit of vulnerability as appropriate, but also, yeah, when the ship's going down, you, as Troy was just saying, you find that courage. And what I think is a positive description of mass that it, that doesn't say be less, but instead what it needs to be is it needs to be about leaning into the positive aspects of masculinity and maturing them, but not being trapped by them. So I, I'm really, I'm the, number of things I've read, which are really just about be less, do less of that. And in fact, my own kids, like when they did went through what, what, what counted as social emotional learning stuff at their schools, and there was stuff about dating and sex and gender. And I asked them what it was like. And they said, it was just a long list of things not to do. <laughs> it was a bunch of ways not to behave. It was all about what not to do. Um, and I do think that's a, the, the kind of unrelenting message about what, how not to be, what not to say, what not to do needs to be complemented with a what to do, 
what's positive. And Peggy Orenstein wrote this book, Boys and Sex, and she asked all these young men, what's good about being a man? And none of them could answer. And one of them said, it's interesting, you hear a lot about what's wrong with being a man. And so I think that that's why I had struggled with toxic masculinity, as Troy just said, because unless you can define non-toxic masculinity in a way that is distinct from femininity, then you're just saying something, you're just using empty words, right? That, that, and, and people very often struggle with that because what they're really saying is, could you just be a bit less male? Mm. And that's a terrible message to send to boys. What we want to say is, could you be male in a good way right? rather than just yeah. less male? It's yeah. just that there is just this subtractive element to this conversation now, which is based on the presumption that masculinity is not of itself the problem. So if we could just make you 60%, no, just, if we could dial down the masculinity, all would be good. And that's completely wrong. Well, you, you know, it's interesting, you know, just hearing you, and I appreciate your comments because you're exactly right. And this is the conversation that's not really happening. And that's why I'm so thankful that you wrote the book because you bring it to a, to, to attention. And once people see the, the data and the statistics, they can't deny it because it's not just an opinion. But the interesting thing, and I keep falling back on, we, we say toxic masculinity. And, and, and as soon as you put the word toxic in front of anything, now you got an issue. And you know, one of the things that when I was researching just that that phrase, toxic masculinity, it's it's almost sort of an overcompensation in some ways of being masculine. When you feel less than in some area, you just overcompensate. And you know, too much of anything is bad for you, even oxygen. And I think that's when we we talk about the line. The word is balanced, and that's the thing that when we're talking about raising boys who can who can be um, uh, in two different settings. You know, you're at a ball or a dance, but also be or resourceful and in the right ways and in a shipwreck, it's about being balanced and knowing how to navigate the different situations and the nuances. And I could say this with, without a doubt, um, you know, it, it's unfortunate that most of the time when you have to summon those skills, you, it's not on the earlier stages of life, it's usually later. Obviously the prefrontal cortex is, is more developed, but ultimately when you're again in leadership roles or you're in a in a meaningful relationship, an authentic relationship, that's when you realize that you're missing your screwdriver or you're missing your hammer. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's when you look it back and go, wow, my toolbox is half empty. And so, you know what you do when you don't have a screwdriver? You use that hammer anyway. <laughs> and I think that's when you start talking about toxic masculinity is because you don't want to be vulnerable. So you control this environment so that you don't need your defenses. You just play offense, just play a lot of offense. Yeah. And I think I see a lot of boys doing that even myself as a man, protecting myself as a young man, young black man with, with growing up without very many resources, I had to build walls where there should have been windows. And it wasn't until I was in leadership roles or being married where I had to deal with people who were very different, or even as a teacher, I had to meet people where they are and got on their level. But who has those experiences early enough to, 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 to know that maybe you need that screwdriver when you're 15 versus when you're 40? Well, as we wrap up this conversation, Richard, I want to ask you about the reaction that you've encountered uh, to this book, um, what, are, what, are you, what are people saying and writing to you about the book? I've been pleasantly surprised so far by the reaction because I'm having a lot of people say, thank you for putting some data points down. Uh, thank you for, in a sense, creating permission for the conversation. That's really the most heartening thing I hear is from people who say, you know what, my girlfriend's mom sister, wasn't too sure about this, but we listened to the book or read the book. We had a really good conversation or 
you know, I had a bunch of mums emailing me and they just basically a message was thank you for making me feel less alone and that this is not my fault that my son is struggling and there are structural factors. And so that's been kind of pleasant too. Uh, obviously there's been criticism uh, as well, but I would say even, even the criticism has been more substantive. I think, I do think there's a growing sense now that there is a problem here to identify and an openness to the conversation, as long as it's held in the right way in the tone, like this conversation, that's tone that's of mutual respect and shared understanding, then it turns out there's a really big appetite for this conversation. It just needs to be held in the right way. And I think my book has been a small contribution to that in, in opening up uh, a particular space. And interestingly, one of the things that's really come up and it's, I wanted to emphasize this based on what Troy just said is this sense of like roles for men, leadership roles for boys. And I guess I'm going to throw this question back to you, all of you a little bit, because I think that one of the reasons people are choosing single sex schooling is all of the pedagogical reasons we've talked about but it's also so that they can have these specific leadership opportunities and male-only spaces that are just hard to find now i mean the fact that the boy scouts went co-ed um which means that like even being patrol leader or scout leader is no longer a role specific to boys or men um and most other institutions have gone co-ed i just think there aren't very male-only spaces and so i wonder if that isn't driving some of the demand for single-sex schooling because it's the only place you can find that so i guess that's a question back to all of you i'd love to know what you think about that yeah you know um i mean here at macaulay we have the largest enrollment we've had in the history of the school about waiting lists on boarding and day side and and i do think a lot of it is people are hungry for environments in which boys can thrive. And I think there is a sense that boys aren't flourishing in the ways in which they could. And I mean, every single thing we do at Macaulay, it's tailored for how do boys learn and develop. And of course we know their generalities and there's, uh, and so forth. Um, but it's a place that celebrates boys and men. And we try to give them that vision of manhood. Most of our teachers are male, unlike, you know, 24% of teachers in the K-12 space today. So I, I do think one of the reasons that Macaulay and, boys schools out there are thriving it's because we know we need to do something different we need to give different and better to our boys and and men and and so we're sort of trying to we're trying to do our you know, part of that and there's still things we're figuring out and and we've got a sister school and we want to make sure that we're thoughtful about putting great female teachers in front of them and things we do with our sister school and, and so forth. So we want to make sure that's a boys school. We don't give into, you know, it's easy where sexist stereotypes could emerge, but we really want to challenge those, encourage boys to be their most authentic, vulnerable selves while developing a, a healthy vision for who they're going to be as men and, and how they can learn from and appreciate, of course, women as well. And uh, so that's what we, so that's what we're trying to do. Troy, what, what about you? Yeah, so so it's interesting because I've worked in uh, two co-ed schools and one single gender school, and because of who I am, I've always approached things, um, considering the fact that I had to reach every child, and, and because of the way I learned, I was more of a kinesthetic learner. So uh, you know, I, my first goal was to make it safe to take healthy risks, and I know that all boys schools that was one of the things. I mean, that was the reason why I came to Macaulay. You know, I asked one question. During my interview, I was teaching a class and every boy raised his hand and I hadn't seen that in my lifetime. And I said, what is this about? Well, they weren't afraid to lose trying to win. And when you look at their ability to regulate their emotions and their impulsivity, we just were able to leverage it and use it in the right way. And they didn't, they weren't worrying about losing. They were focused on winning in that environment. And I think sometimes in other schools, especially the co-ed schools, 
you know, you walk in the door having to apologize for, for moving all the time, for tapping and, and things like that. You're already on defense. You already took your first loss before they asked the first question. So I think, you know, teachers creating an environment where it's a safe place to fail, that's the first thing that is attractive to families because they want their boys to take healthy risks. They want them to trust the environment so they can stretch and grow. And then the other thing is the rules and the policies. You know, all these policies are kind of boy-friendly. You know, there's a lot of rubber and plastic at Macaulay School and less glass. <laughs> you know that they're going to crash into things on their way to learning. <laughs> and so we, that school knows the difference between smoke and fire. And I think some schools with zero tolerance and so forth, they're quick, quickly moving to the principal's office, which means the teacher sends their power to the principal's office, and that child is not learning while they're in the principal's office. So I, I think, you know, Macaulay, schools like Macaulay and the single gender schools are intentional about what potential deficits boys might have and will double down on those things. They're reinforcing the windows, if you would. The, mm -hmm. next, the other thing is making the rules and policies boy-friendly where they can recover from their mistakes as opposed to one and done, because when you're impulsive and you have – uh, nitrous oxide in your gas tank and bad brakes, you're going to crash into something. That doesn't mean that you don't want to learn how to drive and you can't. It's just you're going to run into things. So we can't make it. Uh, the, the punishment has to fit the, the violation. And then the other thing is there's no excuses. Every leadership role at a school like Macaulay is a boy. Every role in the play, every part in the book, every person that plays an instrument. You can wake up as a boy and say, I can do anything and I don't have to apologize because there's no stereotype here. Excellence is the stereotype, and humility is the stereotype. And That's I think what we want. And I think it's and, important to recognize whether a boys' school, co-ed school, that boys and girls are, are equally capable. You know, it's not. It's really more about. And Richard, you say this in your book. It's really more about when they develop than necessarily what someone can. Mm -hmm. You know, can someone achieve? But but there are some general just differences in how boys and girls, you know, biology and approach life and developmental milestones and so forth. And so I think if if schools, whether co-ed or single sex, if they can be more intentional about what do the what do the boys need and how are we failing them right now, then I think we can bring out the best in boys and you know, best in girls too. Mm. Well, I was thinking about Michael Michael Gurian's work here, and uh, you know, on boys, how boys learn, but also the fact that in teacher tra most teacher training colleges, there is there's just nothing on the curriculum about differences in learning styles between boys and girls, and so which is, I just think you only have to think about that for a moment to realize that's just insane that we're not actually teaching teachers about these differences, and then you add to that the fact that the teaching profession in public K-12 is getting progressively more female. We're down to 24% of K-12 teachers are male now, down from 33%. Only one in 10 elementary school teachers. Most elementary schools don't have any male teachers. English is the subject that men are least likely to be teaching in K-12, which is where they seem to have the biggest impact on the boys. And so there's all this stuff going on, which I think means that these co-ed spaces are actually just not doing what I think we've just all agreed we need to do. And I love this idea about risk. I'm going to really think about that from Troy, because to the extent that we know there is, that is one of the big differences on average between men and women, but it's not a small difference it's in this risk-taking thing, which is unless we, to some extent, take away some of the downside of that risk, then boys will be reluctant to take the risk at all. And so thinking about girls are a little bit less risk-taking on average, which means they're better at certain, certain things, like they crank it out, they're better at, producing except for if boys are a bit more risk-taking then how do you create an environment where it's pro-risk in a good way by doubt by in, in a sense having a better a better safety net should the risk not pay off but encourage that so i, I don't 
Anyway, you've just given me something to really think about there, which is how do we think about those differences in the appetite for risk? Because if you just de-risk the whole environment, you're by definition taking a lot of boys out of the yeah. equation because they have more appetite for risk. Yeah. Well, Richard, you've given you've given us a whole lot to, th- to think about. And just we're so grateful that you've written this book. Um, it's going to spawn all kinds of important conversations like the one we're having here. And we're grateful for the time that you spent with us today. And, and Troy, thank you so much for the, for the time that you've invested and for the great work that you continue to do as well. I'm really grateful to have, to have shared these last few minutes with both of you. You have been listening to Stories from the Ridge, a podcast series about the happenings of the faculty, students, and alumni of Macaulay School. Stories from the Ridge is produced by the Macaulay Communications Department. If you have any comments or if you have a suggestion for a future podcast, please let us know by sending us an email to info at macaulay.org. That's info at m-c-c-a-l-l-i-e dot org. Or call us at 423-493-493. 5615. I'm Alex Bundrick with Macaulay's Communications Department. Thanks for listening.